Hello, all. Thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, my name is Gregory Rodriguez. I'm the uh, what am I? I'm the founding director of Socolo Public Square. Uh, I'll tell you what we are in a second. But first, I'd like to uh, uh, thank uh, our, our hosts tonight, the Phoenix Art Museum, and in particular Christian Adame for giving us this space. Thank you. We're grateful to our media partner, uh, KJZZ. Or do you go by KJazz? KJazz. Tell me the right way, dude. I'm learning. I'm new. How do you say it? KJazz. OK, sorry. Unforgiving audience. And we are co-presenting with Arizona State University. Uh, Socolo, which means uh, public square in Spanish, so our legal name is actually Public Square, Public Square. Uh, we are a project of the Center of, for Social Cohesion at Arizona State University. We are uh, based in Phoenix and Los Angeles, and we fancy ourselves a living magazine. We rove around both cities at this point, uh, uh, presenting free events, high intellectual uh, content for as broad a public as we can bring together, and I think this is a wonderfully broad public, and then we serve you booze afterwards. Um, we, we believe uh, very strongly that to build community one has to have a modicum of alcohol. So um, we invite you all after to speak further with uh, each other and with tonight's guests. Uh, our broadly, our mission is to connect people to ideas uh, uh, and to each other. Uh, before, uh, 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 please, uh, if, if you'd like to know more about us, go to SocoloPublicSquare.org or feel free to fan us on Facebook or Twitter at the Public Square for, for more um, for more, uh, 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 for quicker updates. In fact, you'll, some of you might see your picture on Twitter already, sorry. Um, we should have asked. Um, so uh, we'll be back in California, uh, uh, in Sacramento, which uh, I'm telling you because you can watch these all online. On May 8th, uh, a, a panel which includes Christine Pelosi and Ezra Vogel, the Deng Xiaoping biographer, and which is an odd pairing, isn't it? Um, on whether democracy can keep up in the digital age. Is democracy too slow? On May 10th, we're back in Los Angeles where the New Yorker Steve Call will take us inside the black box that is ExxonMobil. Uh, we're back here in Arizona on Friday, May 18th at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art uh, where the Atlantic's James Fallows will ask whether we should be inspired or alarmed by China's bid to dominate the skies. And finally, on Monday, May 21st, we're proud to host journalist Peter Beinart at the Heard Museum. He'll be talking about whether Israel, Israel's democracy can be saved. If you haven't already, please uh, take a moment to turn off your cell phones. Um, and again, please join us after uh, the tonight's uh, talk in the terrace. Um, we will be selling, uh, not, who's selling the books tonight? The museum store. Thank you. The museum store uh, will be selling copies of Alan Aaron Halt's the Great Inversion and the Future of, Ameri of the American City. Please uh, uh, pick one up. Oh, I know you. It's always the one you know that caused trouble. I'm just teasing, dude. I'm really uh, pleased to introduce uh, Mr. Alan Ehrenholt. Alan Ehrenholt is the executive editor of Stateline, a daily news service about state government that is part of the Pew Charitable Trusts. Previously, he was the executive editor of Governing Magazine. He writes frequently for the New York Times, the, Wall, the Washington Post, Book World, and the Wall Street Journal, and is the author of four books, The United States of Ambition, The Lost City, Democracy in the Mirror, and most recently, The Great Inversion. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Alan Ehrenholt. Thanks again. 
Well, thank you for the introduction. I don't know if I can be as lively as the music that preceded me, but I will do my best. I'd like to do a couple of different things in the time I have tonight. One is to give you a sense of the ideas in my book as they apply to American cities in general. The other is to make some observations about Phoenix and places that resemble it in some significant way and see if we can connect those two things up. I thought I'd start by telling you a story it's a story about a snowstorm in Chicago, so you may feel it has limited relevance to Phoenix, but I'll try to, I'll try to connect it up. In 1979, there was a huge blizzard in Chicago in February, 22 inches of snow. The city's transit systems were paralyzed to the extent that they, the trains got so full on the, uh, on the uh, far extreme uh, portions of the city that by the time they got downtown, uh, they weren't even stopping at the stations, and the poorer people who lived in the inner city weren't, get, weren't able to get on the trains. And this caused such a commotion that the mayor of Chicago at that time was defeated in a primary two weeks later because of resentment in the inner city community. Well, my point is that that couldn't happen today, and the reason it couldn't happen is not because of global warming, and it's not because the transit system works perfectly, it's because the people who got on the trains on the outskirts would be the poorer people, and the ones left stranded on the inner city platforms would be the affluent. In other words, Chicago has undergone a dramatic change in which wealthy people live in the center and poorer people live on the outskirts of town. You can call this gentrification if you want to. We've talked about that term. But I would argue somewhat more broadly that since 1979, Chicago has undergone a change that goes beyond gentrification. It's more like a term I made up, so I'm fond of it, Democrat, demographic inversion. Chicago is coming to look like a European city of 100 years ago, like London, Vienna, or Paris, or for that matter, Paris today. That is, people who have economic choice are coming to live in the center. Minorities and immigrants live beyond the city limits. And I would argue further that this is happening in cities all over the country, and it is not irrelevant to Phoenix, even if it has not begun to show itself in the same way in Phoenix yet. I think it makes a difference whether you live in a city that has snowstorms or you don't. Uh, two decades ago, the great urban historian Donald Olson wrote, if we are to achieve an urban renaissance, it is the 19th century city that will be reborn. To a great extent, I think we've begun that process. I would argue that when the economy moves back closer to a condition of prosperity, the process will continue. But there's plenty of evidence from what's already taken place. These things like demographic inversion rarely happen in one city at a time. You come to realize that as you, as you take a look at urban issues. They're, they're hap it's happening in a growing number of affluent metro areas around the country. Sometimes it's related to race in Atlanta and, and Washington, D.C., for example. Both of those cities will soon have gone over a period of 20 years from being two-thirds African-American to being minority African-American. Atlanta very nearly elected a white Republican mayor in 2009. So you see these enormous changes are happening to cities. In many cases, it's, it's what I just described, the affluent coming to the center, the poor people leaving the city limits altogether. So in the suburban counties of Atlanta, you have big African-American majorities or large immigrant majorities. And this has major implications for the concept of space 
in American society. The truth is, and really this is the important point, we're living in a moment in which the massive outward migration of the affluent that characterized the second half of the 20th century is coming to an end. And we need to adjust our perceptions of cities and suburbs and urban mobility as a result. Now, why is demographic inversion taking place? Well, first, there's the deindustrialization of the central city. Hardly anything is made there anymore. Hardly anything is made in cities at all anymore. Manhattan may seem like a gritty and noisy place, but it's nothing like the city of tenements and manufacturing and deafening L trains and horses and coal dust in the streets of a century ago. Manhattan is not an industrial city anymore, not an industrial borough, and New York is not an industrial city. Neither are other cities that used to be. Phoenix never really was in that way. Why else is demographic inversion taking place? Well, there's a decline in random street violence. The fear of the adults had in the 1970s that the person walking behind them at night was very likely a mugger that fear that prevented people from feeling relaxed when they walked around cities like Washington or New York or Chicago or probably Phoenix. That has disappeared in most places. It's not that crime has disappeared, but people feel much more relaxed about being outside, about enjoying the city 24 hours a day. It's not comparable to the situation that prevailed a quarter of a century ago. And people under the age of 25 fear it least of all. They don't even think very much about it. The most popular night spot area for night spots in Washington now is 14th and U Streets, which is the 1968 riot corridor, the place that went up in flames uh, upon the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968 and didn't really come back to life as a place to work, let alone live, for 30 years. Nobody wanted to go there. And now it's the place where hip 20-somethings gather on Friday and Saturday nights, an enormous enormous change in Washington, D.C., and one that's paralleled by things that are happening in Chicago, New York, Cincinnati, Atlanta, all of these cities that we're talking about. It hasn't happened yet in Phoenix, but again, I think it's important to stress what's going on in these other cities because it's relevant to where Phoenix will be going in the next couple of decades. And most of all, there are the values and the, de the demographics of the millennial generation. That is, the generation born between the early, roughly, depending on how you define it, between the early 1980s and 1995. This is between 50 and 60 million people. It's the second largest generation in America. The largest is my generation, the baby boomers, many of yours as well. Uh, that's about 78 million people. But the millennials, so-called, are 50 to 60 million. I'll tell you another story. I spent part of the last 10 years uh, teaching at two universities on the East Coast, the University of Richmond and the University of Maryland. And I taught different courses, but at some point during the semester, whatever course I taught, I would ask the kids, where would you like to be in living in 15 years? And some people said small towns, and a lot of people said big cities. But I almost never got anybody saying, I'd like to live 40 miles outside of the city with a five-bedroom house and a gas grill and a cul-de-sac. People didn't say that. And I thought that's quite remarkable. Now, that's the, that's the furthest thing in the world from a, uh, 
from a scientific survey, and yet it tells me something about what the millennial generation is thinking. And if you go to 14th and U Streets in Washington or its counterparts uh, in the other big cities of the Northeast and to some extent Portland, Seattle, you know, on the, closer to here, um, you really see this and you see this change in the values of the millennial generation that differs from the generation prior to it, which is called Generation X, and it certainly differs from the values of the baby boomers. Now, when, you, when I follow up the question of where you want to be in 15 years with, would you be willing to give up your car? Nobody said, yes, I want to give up my car. Everybody says, of course we're going to have cars. So I wouldn't assume that a return to the city or a movement to the city on the part of young people means that everybody is going to give up car usage, although the, the most recent poll that I saw last week showed that driving was down among people under 30 uh, just recently, part, partly no doubt as a result of the recession, but partly from other reasons too. That's the first time that that sort of a result uh, has been seen in a long time. Let me give you some numbers. In the 1950s, half of American households were raising children. In 2020, according to the demographer Arthur Nelson, who's as good as you get on this subject, it'll be 25% of American households raising children. In other words, that number will have been cut in half from the, in the period from 1950 to about, about 1950 to 2020. The increase in single-person households may be twice the increase in the number of households with children. And people over 65, that's a category that we can be very definitive about because we're already here. People over 65, 13% in 2010, 19% in 2020. So when you think of the larger demographic changes, more people remaining single, the rise of cohabitation, the later age of marriage, the smaller size of families. At the other end, more healthy and active adults in the later years, it's hard to escape the notion that we have managed to combine the elements that make demographic inversion not only possible, but likely. We're moving toward a society in which millions of people with substantial earning power or ample savings will have the option of living wherever they want. Many will opt for central cities. Others will find themselves forced to live in places less desirable, further from the center of the metropolis. So where are we in trying to create a 21st century sense of place? I sometimes feel like this is a little bit, even though I wasn't alive, a little bit like 1944. You know, we were reaching the end of a cataclysm and we were talking about what is life going to be like after the war? Well, we're not in the middle of a, of a major war now, thank goodness. Um, just a lot of small ones. But we're nevertheless nearing the end, one would hope, of a cataclysm that's in this case an economic cataclysm, a very serious one. And there's a debate going on, what is life going to be like when the Great Recession and its aftermath finally play themselves out. The world will be different, but how will it be different? Well, as World War II came to an end, there were a majority of economists said the depression is going to return. But it didn't return. We stayed prosperous and we evolved a whole new way of life built around cars. Now some critics say that when prosperity returns, we will just keep sprawling out further and further. Conventional suburbs, will go further out into the distance, as they have done in Phoenix in the last half century, way out into the desert. 
And others are saying the rising generation, generation Y, the millennials, will crave some form of urban or urbanized place. And as I say, that's the second largest generation in American society. So what are some possible futures that come out of all of, these, all of this speculation and these numbers? Well, we're not going to have any more high-rise public housing. We, we're done with that, thank goodness. That period is over. I would argue that gated suburban communities have passed their peak. The downtown condos may have elaborate security systems, but they will not be gated. They'll be connected to the street. The millennials seem to want this. The condos are not going to be the gated communities of the suburbs of the 1980s. Gated communities won't go away, but I wonder how many more of them are going to be built. So we're left with an increase in urbanized life, not all of it downtown. My argument would be that if you take the supply of people that want to live an urbanized life, or will come to want an urbanized life as they mature in the next decade, there are a lot more of them than there is room for them downtown in most cities. That may not be true in Phoenix. You have enough open space downtown that you could accommodate a big urban population if you could figure out some way to make downtown Phoenix work as a residential area. You've got room for it. In a place like Houston, there's no place to put them. There's no place to put all the people who want to live downtown. So what you're going to have is satellite urban centers. And I think you're probably seeing this to some degree around Phoenix. We certainly are seeing it in Houston and Atlanta and Washington. Um, urbanizing the suburbs. Old shopping malls reconverted into gridded neighborhoods. That's very difficult to do. Tyson's Corner, which some of you may be familiar with, which is a massive suburban shopping centers and traffic jams, is trying to make, into, make itself into a city. Quite remarkable. If they succeed, I would tend to say if Tyson's Corner can make itself into a city, Tyson's Corner is about 10 miles outside of Washington, D.C., then any suburban place can make it into a city, and a lot of them are going to try. How many suburbs that you live in or have been to are trying to recreate themselves as town centers? Urban villages. You hear all of that, all of that concept now. I took a look at two major developments outside Houston the Woodlands and Sugarland, built really in 20 years ago as antidotes uh, to, to, to city life, as suburban refuges. And now you look at their advertising and they'll say, we're more urban than you think. Come to the Woodlands for an urban experience. And it's pretty clear, you know, developers may not be the most original people in the world, but they have a sense of where the market is going. If you look at what developers are saying about the suburban developments that they're living in, they're saying these developments are more urban than you realize. Give us a look. So we're going to have suburban town centers developing all over the place. You're going to see them mushrooming, I would argue, in the, in the Valley of the Sun because not everybody who wants an urbanized life is going to be able to or perhaps even desire to live in downtown Phoenix. Right now, there aren't many places to live in downtown Phoenix. But we will see town centers springing up with walkable streets. Now, it remains true that millions of people, maybe even the largest single cohort, who have raised their families in suburbs will stay there and age in place. There's not, even though you, there's, there's a lot of talk about an empty nest stampede to the cities, I don't really see that. I don't think we're talking about tens of millions of people in their 60s and 70s selling out their suburban house and moving downtown. 
I think that's wishful thinking on the part of a number of urbanists. I think this is a revolution, but it's a revolution that's going to be made by the younger generation, not the older generation. The older generation is going to tend to want to age in place. But they will be dying off, so what happens to the exurbs? An interesting question. And you have a whole range of answers. You have, among others, the demographer and urbanist Christopher Leinberger, who says, and you may have read some of his work in The Atlantic, that the uh, exurbs are going to be slums in 30 years, when everybody, when everybody who wants to is living closer to the city. I think that's a big exaggeration. I don't think the exurbs are going to be slums, even the ones if you drive 40 miles out from Phoenix and you see these places that didn't get developed and, are, and where, there, where there was development, there's a foreclosure sign. I don't think those are going to be slums. I think those are going to find a niche. But it's going to be a niche for the emerging middle class, not for the affluent. It's going to be for immigrants and poorer people trying to reach their way into the middle class in urban society. So we're going to have McMansions with more than one family living in them. I think that's going to be fairly common. Prices will go down. It'll be cheaper to live 40 miles out than it will be to live in downtown Phoenix once downtown Phoenix gets going. All of this will happen at a different pace in different cities. In some cities, it may not happen at all. But I think it's going to happen in most places in America. Now, demographic inversion won't come to Detroit or Buffalo in the way that it has to Chicago and Atlanta. But it will come. I mean, I think. If we are patient, we will see, when we have no choice but to be patient in matters like this, we will see most cities in America undergoing a pattern of change and development of this sort. I haven't mentioned four crucial words, the price of gas. You know, we had previous spikes in the 1970s. Some of you may remember them. And there were predictions that with the price of gas going to whatever it was then, $3, adjusted for inflation, it's probably more than it is now, that we're going to have a major return to the city. Well, that didn't come to pass. But this one is different, it seems to me. I'm, the last thing I am is an expert on energy. But it does seem, even if you're not an, ex an expert, that what we're seeing now is not a cartel of sheiks determining what the price of gasoline is going to be in this country, but an increase in worldwide demand on the basis of industrialization in places like India and China. And that isn't going to change. And so the price of gasoline, which is over $4 in much of the country the last time I looked, I don't know what it is here, probably something close to that, that's probably going to stay and, if anything, get higher. Now, I don't know how many families in the outer suburbs will make the decision in the next few years to stop paying $100 every few days for a tank of gas. It'll allow them to commute 40 or 50 miles round trip every day. Some will stay where they are and accept the cost. Some will make the opposite decision. So I would argue in general that the problem in major cities in the coming decade will not be finding people who want to live in the center, but finding places to accommodate them, whether it's in the center or near the center or in the urbanized suburb. This is what we're going to be looking at. I should say a word about how education fits into all of this. There are a significant number of urban advocates among mayors who can, and, and others who continue to insist that the middle class won't return to central cities until the school problem is fixed. You hear that all the time. I would be just as happy as anyone to see urban schools improve 
but I think these people have it backward. Schools improve after the middle class arrives. Schools are not the first piece of the urban puzzle that falls into place. They're among the final pieces. The important questions in this area are whether young adults will be attracted to living downtown. Obviously, I think they will. Will they want to stay there when they have children? I think there's evidence that they are already doing that in the places that they have moved to. If you walk down Wall Street, this is fascinating. In the financial district in New York, Lower Manhattan, on one side of Wall Street, from Broadway all the way to the East River, every building except the New York Stock Exchange is now a residence. It's hard to believe until you see it. But if you walk down Wall Street on a Saturday morning, you see people with strollers going to the grocery store. A major change. So will people want to stay in the city when they have children? Yes, now. Will they want to stay when the kids reach school age? That's the issue, and I don't pretend to know the answer. We're still going to have a lot of, a lot of flight on the part of people whose kids are, in, are, are now in school age and who decide they want to live somewhere else beside the city. But where are they going to go exactly? The su suburban school systems are almost as diverse as city school systems now. If what you're looking for is a homogeneous ethnic school system, it's hard to know where you can go, how, where you're supposed to run to. So I think the, the white flight element of suburbanization that prevailed in the last generation is going to be a little more difficult to sustain when you look at what school systems look like in the suburbs anyway. And people are going to say, let's stay in the city and make this work and make the school system work. A lot still depends on one more crucial question, which is less tangible, but it's very interesting and in which no one can answer with confidence right now. Certainly I can't. And that is, what will the impact of information technology be on the desire for physical contact? Think about cell phone conversations. People walking down the street, talking on cell phones, not, look where they're, not looking where they're going, bumping into everybody else. That happens to us all the time. Do these contacts replace or add to traditional personal contact? Some of it clearly is an addition. It's extra personal contact. How many phone conversations that you're over here, and it's not very difficult to overhear a cell phone conversation, unfortunately. How many of these conversations are people arranging where they're going to meet physically in the next 15 minutes? That's a large percentage of these, of these cell phone conversations. So, I think that the cell phone and other social media are not alternatives to physical contact. They're ways of enhancing physical contact. And you might, while you might argue that iPhones and social media and all of this make the need for place-based personal contact obsolete because you could tweet very easily and very quickly from Kuala Lumpur to Surprise, Arizona. You could argue that that makes physical contact obsolescent or even obsolete. Or you might argue that these same forces will generate a demand for old-fashioned, place-based human relations. And that's what I would argue. Because people won't want to live their whole lives plugged into a phone, even if it sometimes seems like they're beginning to do that. And that is a reason why they will congregate in cities, because as much time as people will spend electronically, they also, we are, we are social animals and we are going to want the physical contact that cities provide. The more of the one there is, the more demand there will be for the other. And so I believe there's already a budding revival of urban place 
and physical community in the uh, emerging generation. That's what I found reporting my book. Maybe in 20 years we'll know the extent to which it'll succeed. But for people in places, and I have a little bit of time left, for people in places like Phoenix, there's the, there's the crucial question about how all this applies to them, to you. And I want to talk about this, and I'm sensitive to the idea that I don't want to pretend to know more about your city than you do, because I clearly don't. You know incomparably more. But I can try to give you some of the impressions that have struck me as a visitor in the last few years. And this is not just Phoenix, but cities all over the South and West. Something puzzling happened in the last 10 years. We have cities all over the Sun Belt looking for a downtown. Not just a mishmash of office buildings, hotels, and stadiums, because most of them had that, Phoenix and Charlotte and Dallas and Houston. Not that, but ju not just that, but a city cent center comparable to ones that the business elite sees on visits to older cities, New York and Boston and Chicago, but especially older places closer to home, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland. So it was that in a remarkably few years, Phoenix and Dallas and other cities did things they would have considered unthinkable a decade or two before. They spent billions of public dollars on light rail transit systems. They drafted long-term vision documents that projected a future in which downtowns were friendly to pedestrians rather than just convenient for automobiles. And they won voter support for striking new libraries and museums and placed them as close to downtown as they possibly could. Well, what were they looking for? What, does, what was Phoenix looking for? I'd answer two things, really. One was a downtown residential population that they were convinced that older cities had and that great cities needed. The other was street life, around-the-clock presence of locals and visitors that would project a sense of vibrancy to anyone who saw it. Why did they want those things? That turns out to be a more complex question. For some, the reasons were relatively specific. They were tied closely to the desire to recruit and retain big corporations in the sense that these companies were uneasy locating in a metropolis without a center. In Phoenix, Motorola, as you all know, relocated to Austin, where the center of the city bustled with life at all hours of the day and night. That message was not lost on the business community of Phoenix. The perception in Phoenix business circles, whether entirely accurate or not, was that Motorola left because it wanted a place with a downtown and that you didn't really have one. More specifically, it wanted a place with a sophisticated urban scene that would appeal to the bright young college graduates it hoped to employ. Well, this was a common refrain. Virtually all of these Sunbelt cities, Phoenix included, bought into the geographer Richard Florida's argument that future prosperity depended on the ability to lure the creative class and that this could be done only with a thriving urban culture. More broadly, though, there was a perception that the 21st century world was dividing rapidly into global cities and cities that were second tier, no matter what their metropolitan size, and that rebuilding a downtown was the only way to move into the first rank. As Mayor Gordon said, the common element of great cities has always been a belief in the central core as the heart. It's certainly a belief that, that he has had. And so there have been the series of schemes that you all know about the urban villages of the 1970s, the Arizona Center, the belief for a while that stadiums and entertainment could be the key to revitalizing downtown, 
the high-rise condos of the last decade, and then cityscape, which is just down the road, of course. But none of that really succeeded in achieving a residential recovery. It isn't even a recovery because you never had much of a downtown residential population. And it's frustrating because so many of the other things you were doing were working well. The light rail was carrying more passengers than anyone expected it to. Arizona State was bringing, I don't know what, it, what the population is up to, but the goal certainly was, and you can probably tell me, the goal was 15,000 students downtown by about a year or two from now. So a lot was going right for what Phoenix wanted to do. But you might conclude that despite all this, people in Phoenix just didn't want to live downtown. But that is, that, that is not true. I don't believe that that's true. In this valley, there are what now, 4.5 million people? If 1% of that population decided to live in the center of the city, you would have more than enough to create the most vibrant downtown that you have ever had. And that perhaps may not be saying much, but one vibrant enough that, <laughs> that, one vibrant enough that, 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 that it would be an exciting place to be on weekends and at night. But it has to be a neighborhood. It has to be a community. It can't just be buildings and developments. It can't just be individual projects or high-rise condos. I personally am a believer in the five-story building. If you could fill up downtown with five-story developments at market rate, I think you would attract a sizable demand, particularly when this economic downturn ends. But, that, but something like 44 East Monroe is not the answer. It is East Monroe, isn't it? It's not the answer. The answer is five and six story buildings and where you've built them, they've been pretty successful. And I think that's the key to a revived downtown Phoenix is those kinds of buildings. I think it's important to remember that Phoenix does have one quality that it shares with other American large cities and that is a cohort of people in their 20s and early 30s who seem to be tiring of exurban desert life. Carol Johnson, the planning director, I don't know if she's here, but she said to me one day a couple of years ago, we have all these people who came here after World War II who are terrified we're going to take their green lawns away from them with density, but their children don't feel that way. They want a more urban experience. And I think from my experience, from my observations in Phoenix and other cities in this area, that's very true. Indeed, when the Gallup poll surveyed young people in Arizona in 2009, most of them in the Phoenix area, only 11% gave their community top grades as a place to live. 29% said they'd move to another city or state if they had the choice. An Arizona State junior told Gallup, when I think about Chicago, I think about 24-7 energy and great food. When I think about Austin, I think young people and music. Will I be here in five years? No. Well, I don't know if she's still here. But that is what Phoenix in so many ways wants and what so many of its young people want. One survey doesn't prove anything, but it suggests what the elite in Phoenix worries about and why it has embarked so many times on the difficult project of trying to create recognizable urban life. Grady Gamage said to me once, there is something genuinely vital about a city that we are lacking here, and we want that. We worry about the image of Phoenix being all golf courses and old people. Well, in the end, post-war cities such as Phoenix crave urbanity, not just because they've enjoyed it in Portland or San Francisco, but because they believe the future of their regions depend on it. And indeed, it may. 
They believe that if only there's a hip music scene, if only they could have a safe, vibrant street life that extended beyond working hours, if only they could have 30,000 people living downtown. And I think you can have a lot more than 30,000 people living downtown. If they could have all these things, they could be 21st century cities with hearts instead of just 20th century population clusters. Phoenix is not a global city, perhaps, at the moment, but it can be. It just has to think about how it gets there. I'm going to stop now, and I think I'm near the end of my time, and I'd be glad to answer any questions that you might have. everyone. Hi. It's so great to be back in Phoenix. I'm an ASU grad and uh, I'm on familiar grounds. I used to come here for field trips and later dates. <laughs> but um, anyhow, um, at this time we'll open it up to you all quest for questions. Just a quick reminder before we get started, we will be recording tonight's discussion on both video and audio podcasts. If you have a question, please raise your hand and please wait for one of us to get to you. And please share your name into the mic before asking your question. Have your first question on your left. Uh, Dwayne Eckelberg, and I just wonder what is the magic of a five-story building? Well, that's a good question. But Paris is composed largely of five-story buildings, and that is something that makes Paris a, a beautiful city, and how can I articulate this? One in which the street and the buildings relate to each other in a harmonious way. Um, up to five stories, you have people, people on the fifth floor look out and look at what's going on down in the street. The people on the street look at what's going on in the fourth and fifth stories. There is something magic that I don't completely understand about five stories, and it doesn't literally have to be five. It can be four or six, but it can't just be skyscrapers. Even though Manhattan is a pretty good example of a social city, you don't want to start plunking skyscrapers into downtown as you did in the middle of the last decade and believe you are creating a neighborhood. Neighborhoods have to be on a, on a lesser scale than that, but you can have an awful lot of density in a place like downtown Phoenix if you build five-story buildings. Question on your right. Oh, I will mention something to the five stories in Los Angeles. The, there's a big building called threat, building code threshold right at five stories and what you need to do for earthquake mitigation is tremendously higher than what you need to do for five stories or less. My question is... That's to, exactly right. That's true in Phoenix also. My question is to the influence of uh, transportation systems. And the other things that I'd like you to address is the idea of what zoning and mixed residential commercial zoning from the city planning point of view would have as an influence. And then secondly, I've seen in both Los Angeles and San Francisco a tendency for Industrial areas to open up, they're cheaper, the square footage is cheaper, and you get entrepreneurs and artists that move into that area that kind of kickstart that little urbanization going. And I wonder what the relative influence of those might be. Oh, I'm Jack Anderson. Mixed use is incredibly important. If there's one thing that the left and the right should be able to agree on, it's that single-use zoning has been a disaster over the last hundred years. If we could have mixed, if we could throw out all the zoning codes and go back to mixed use or what's sometimes called form-based zoning in which you don't pay any attention to what kind of use a building is put to. You merely look at whether the building is 
visually consistent with its neighbors, that sort of zoning in, in which uses can be anything um, would be a tremendous boon to, to downtown residential living. Um, and your other question was? But the influence was for like artists moving into a place or something like that and taking advantage of the cheaper square footage only to have it renovate the neighborhood. Yeah, that's been the beginning in an awful lot of places in a neighborhood like Wicker Park in Chicago or Williamsburg in Brooklyn. The artists come first and then sometimes they get priced out of the neighborhood because it becomes so desirable uh, that it, it becomes too expensive for the artists to live there and they, then they go and colonize the next neighborhood which in Brooklyn is Bushwick. And so you have a, you have a process of artists and, and pioneers spreading out. That is something that would be desirable in Phoenix and it, it would, I don't know how to, how to encourage that, whether subsidies would be of some value, whether you could, you do have, you do have some sort, on Roosevelt, Roosevelt Avenue, don't you have some sort of live work art, artist quarters? I think that's a very good idea and putting something like that in the middle of downtown would be a very good way to, to, to get some of this going. Question on your left. Hi, my name is Dale Johnson. And I think we have one of your metaphorical urban mushrooms here in the form of Scottsdale. They're involved in a very, very active civic debate right now about whether they're gonna create more dense downtown there. And there's a lot of issues about noise and traffic and all of that. And I'm wondering how do we preserve neighborhood quality when we get this densification? Because that maybe Phoenix is a third way. We're not gonna get five-story buildings because we have a lot of single-story neighborhoods butting up right against our urban core. But is there another path that we can use so we can preserve the quality of life without getting that five-story building? Well, I wouldn't give up on five-story buildings, but um, <laughs> you have really a great opportunity in downtown Phoenix because there's so much empty space that you can, I mean, you, you really, you, won't, you don't have a large downtown population that, that is gonna resent the type of development that somebody wants to put in. You have a blank slate that you can write on. Not many cities can do that. You've got a tremendous opportunity. You just have to decide what you want to put there. If, it, if you can't do five stories, and the gentleman who mentioned that, that above five stories, the uh, building requirements are much more strict. That's true. So that's another reason to make it five stories instead of six. Now, I know there are reasons why developers have trouble costing out a five-story development. They want to make it as tall as they can. But I think the last decade proved in Phoenix that too tall and isolated was not probably a good recipe for success. Scottsdale, I don't know a whole lot about Scottsdale, but I know it's different and that you probably have a central city population that would be willing, that would be fighting added density, right? You don't have to worry about that in Phoenix. There's nobody living down here that you particularly have to be afraid of. Question on your right. I'm, I'm Peter Newton and I do happen to live downtown. Uh, but my question has to do with uh, somewhat similar to what this gentleman just was mentioning. We have a common perception both in our city and outside our city of what development works here and what people can make money from because the, all of our native banks and everything else have sold out and left. So everyone believes this is an endlessly sprawling city of single story. So what uh, economic incentives, uh, other perceptions can we use to start that development to create uh, people to understand the changes? Well, one thing, one thing that has been successful in a lot of other cities is that something that Phoenix can't do, really, which is you, you give developers incentives to convert old Class B and C office buildings 
into condos. And so you, it's, it's very easy to take a 1920s office building and make it into a condominium. It's very hard to make it into a modern office building. And so reconversion of aging office buildings is what other cities have done. I don't think you can do a whole lot of that. You may, you may be able to do it to a certain extent, but that, is, that has been one way that cities have been able to develop themselves downtown because they have a stock of office buildings that nobody wants to use uh, commercially anymore. Um, I think there are tax incentives that can be of some value, but the market is going to drive this. I mean, there's a limited extent to which government can create downtown residential. But my argument is that the market will drive it, that there are enough people in the, in the emerging generation that if developers can find a way to build things downtown, they'll be able to fill them up. Question on your left. Hi, my name is Wayne Porter, and you mentioned uh, the importance of uh, developing a sense of community and that uh, uh, many uh, have commented that uh, Phoenix you know, is, is missing something, that, that life, and, that, and maybe that sense of community is part of it. But do you have any advice for the policymakers in the city and the, and the city planners for somehow jump-starting that uh, sense of, of community within a city that is formed mostly of uh, uh, immigrants to, to the city from other, other parts of the United States. There are very few native Arizonans, and I'm one, so I, I, I kind of miss that sense of community, but I wonder if you have any advice. Well, I always feel nervous giving advice to policymakers. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not aware that any have taken my advice previously. But I think the answer, you know, and I'm repeating myself now, but I have only a certain stock of ideas, so I have to, have to recycle them. <laughs> Smaller scale, a scale on which people see each other on the street every day is, is very important. I think mammoth scale condo, there's a place for very tall condos, but you have to have a small scale along with it, and, you have to, and that creates street life. That, and now, how the government can do that by public policy, I don't pretend to know. I, you know, people wiser than I are going to have to figure that out. But I do know that that's what works in cities and makes cities exciting places. And uh, that's the best I can do on that question, I'm afraid. Question on your right. Hi, Paul Hanson, Matip. Have you studied the role of innovation in community policing and its effect on people choosing to live in downtown urban centers? I think community policing has been very important. Um, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in it. I think it's had something to do in a major way with reducing the crime rate in big cities in the last 20 years. And I think it's, it may, it can, the presence of police in the neighborhood, in a community, downtown or wherever it is, in a surrounding neighborhood, um, the fact that police are a physical presence is a very important um, emblem of the, of the sense of security that people have come to feel in big cities in the last 20 years. So yes, I think community policing has a lot to do with that. Question on your left. Um, my name is Ed Sylvester. Uh, both Phoenix and Tempe have really embraced mass transit and lots of other places have not. And I wondered how important you see that as this whole urbanization as neighborhoods and so forth. Well, mass transit, I mean, I've, I've ridden the trains in Phoenix, and I must say it's been quite an interesting experience. I've, I've read them, read them. I've ridden them in the middle of the day, and I find them extremely crowded. 
But, I, but these are not people that are commuting. They're student, well, there are, some of them are students who are commuting, but people who are using them for recreation, people at night who come downtown for entertainment and, and, and dining. I think people, have, people who bring their bicycles, I'm amazed at the number of bicycles you have on your light rail trains. Sometimes it's hard to get to your seat because you have to step over too many bicycles. So um, I, think, I think transit has been enormously successful at attracting groups of people that one might not immediately associate with it. If I, had, now I, haven't, I haven't been back here in a little over a year, but my impression is that the one thing light rail has not attracted extremely successfully is uh, nine to five commuters. That this is a group of people that tends not to take light rail. But I still think it's, it's you know, that once those tracks go in, there's a reason for a developer to want to build. It may take 20 years, but light rail and anything that's got tracks will do something that buses cannot do. Because you can have a bus route and change it tomorrow. But when a developer sees the tracks go in, there's, there, ultimately there is a reason to build along those stations and at those nodes. And, and it won't happen necessarily in the first five years. And you are still in the first five years. Um, but I think that's going to come. And um, so I'm a believer in that. I have a question on your right. This will be the last question of the evening. We've run out of time, but thank you all so much for coming. Uh, please join us on the terrace where you can have drinks and chat further with Mr. Aaron Hall and each other. My name is Aaron Kimberlin. I've been working huh. in downtown Phoenix since the age of 13. Um, loved what you've uh, discussed about today, even bringing up Wicker Park in Chicago, which I lived in previously. Um, I'm a millennial and uh, well-educated for that matter. And I think other millennials are as well. What's your viewpoint on millennials? Do you think the reason why they are um, focusing on career, not getting married, focusing on you know, cohabitation. Do you really think that uh, it's their way of holding the United States hostage? <laughs> in order for a better built environment, in order for us, because well, there's one thing that we know, we know authenticity versus something that's, something that's forced, that's something that's driven, uh, money driven, et cetera. So I think we're more, well more educated now than any previous generations. So what's your viewpoint on millennials and that? Well, I'm very pro-millennial because I have two millennial daughters. Uh, and they wouldn't be caught living in a suburb. They want to live in cities. One lives in Portland and the other in Minneapolis. I think that a, a generation of kids, mostly affluent kids, grew up and decided that suburbs were boring, that going to the mall was not the most exciting thing to do on the weekend. Why this particular generation decided this at a, at a particular moment in history, I can't really answer. I mean, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Maybe we can talk about it more in the future. But there is a sense of ennui against suburban life that prevails within much of the millennial generation. Does that mean everybody between age 15 and 30 is going to rush off and live in a loft in a city? No. But generations do have trends, just as the baby boomers had patterns, for better or worse, that we, that, that, that we are associated with. And millennials, I believe, will be associated with a sense of boredom at suburban life and a sense that there is something more exciting and rewarding and fulfilling to be encountered in a city, and we're going to be seeing that in the next decade. Thank you all.